So we'll start this morning uh, uh, with a quick update on where we are in the story so far. Uh, we're in Jonah. We're in part three of four. So we're going to wrap up the, the book next week. A couple of weeks ago, God commissioned Jonah to be a prophet. Gives him the job of going to Nineveh and preaching against them. Uh, Jonah, for a number of reasons, is not a great fan of the people of Nineveh. So he goes in the opposite direction, goes to a port city called Tarshish, heads off in that direction, trying to get away from the mission that God put on his life, trying to kind of get away from the, the, the commission that God has, has commissioned him with. Get, gets on the boat, tries to get away from the city as far as he can get. Uh, God, on the other hand, is not dissuaded from appointing this prophet. Rather, he's a little upset that Jonah would choose to disobey him. Uh, so he sends this crazy storm onto the ship that Jonah is on. So bad is the storm that the seasoned sailors are terrified of the outcome. Uh, so they're all, they, they all think that they're going to die. Eventually what happens is they find out that Jonah is to blame for the storm. So they ask him what to do and they find out he's a prophet of the Lord. And they follow his instructions and throw him overboard. As soon as that happens, the storm stops. And, and the men kind of feel a fear of the Lord seeing this, this great miracle happen. Um, and th- that kind of fear, I would argue and hope, leads them to their permanent conversion that we saw in chapter 1. Uh, we don't know that last part. We don't know that it was permanent for sure. They're never mentioned again in scripture, but that's the hope that we have. Um, after that, last week, we see what happens to Jonah after he gets jettisoned from that ship. Uh, he lands in the sea, about to drown. Gets e- he prays, gets eaten by this great big fish, spends three days in that fish, prays the whole time. Uh, and we talked about that last week. Then he ends up being vomited up on the shore. And that's where we ended the story last week. Um, Jonah had kind of consented and relented to God's power and authority. He'd kind of given up his fight. And uh, that's kind of where we are now. We pick up the story today in chapter 3. So I'll pray. And then we will get right to it. Uh, Father God, thank you for the story of Jonah. Thank you for what it teaches us about you. Thank you for what it teaches us about ourselves. Be with us this morning. Give us ears to hear Uh, your words. Give us minds to understand your words. Give us hearts to be softened and moved uh, by your word and give us hands and feet to move. Uh, Help us to understand the story in light of the gospel, in light of your truth, uh, and in light of the world we live in today. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So Jonah chapter 3. We're on a roll, reading the whole chapter this morning. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, And call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent. And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. So that's the midst of the story we find ourselves in this morning. Jonah's been vomited out of this stomach of this great fish or whale. 
finds himself face to face on a beach. Sorry, face down on a beach. And then we get verse 1, right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So God hasn't given up on Jonah. Hasn't given up on wanting Jonah to do this thing that he's called him to do. So God calls Jonah again, right? Saying this, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. God does it again. Gives Jonah the message. Gives Jonah the commission. Go to Nineveh. They're evil. When you get there, tell them what I tell you to say. It's interesting, isn't it? I haven't really caught that yet. It's interesting that God hasn't told Jonah the message yet. See, Jonah rejected the mission right away. He disobeyed God and ran away from the commission before he knew what the actual message was. Now, Jonah's no fool. He probably could figure out what it was, but he didn't know. He hadn't been told yet. I find that interesting, personally. It's very telling about Jonah, where his interests are, where his heart is, and how much he really had a dislike for the Ninevites. But that's a sermon for another day. We'll we'll get to Jonah's heart next week and what happens to it when we wrap up. Verse 3, So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Three chapters into the book, Jonah finally does what he's been told to do. Still in three. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. Really quickly, there's a lot going on in the world of biblical translation and criticism in that second half of verse three. Nineveh, historically, geographically, was not um, that large of a city yet. It wasn't really, it wouldn't take you three days to walk across it. It didn't grow to about that size until about 50 years later. Um, would have taken them that long to kind of cross the geographical city. So most likely what's going on is Jonah's talking about the region, like the region of Nineveh, which had a couple of other cities included in it. Or they could just simply talking about how long it would take Jonah to do his job while he was in this. Like once you get there, it'll take you three days to get this message out to everyone. Right? Um, it, it's, Hebrew is a funny language that way. It's, it's, very, um, it, it's very contextual and, and can be translated a couple of different ways. We'll see that next week as well. Um, so that phrase, uh, another one in there, um, talking about Nineveh as an exceedingly great city. That phrase could be translated to as an important city to God. Right? Nineveh did become one day, it became one of the capitals of the Assyrian Empire, but that wasn't for another 50 years or so. So when they say it's an exceedingly great city, when at the time it historically wasn't, they're talking about kind of it's important to God for some reason. So there's some translation and there's things that are going on in the way that Jonah wrote that particular sentence has been giving translators fits for millennia. Um, so I think Jonah might have a smirk on his face up there when, when, when we try and do this, but... One day we'll ask him. Um, either way, it doesn't really affect the message we get from the book. Uh, I just want you to know it was there because, A, I want to be honest with you. Uh, I want to let you know when there are these kinds of, 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 of questions going on in the world of translation. And, B, I just think that this stuff is neat. So I want to share it with you. So, verse 4. Um, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. So he's, he's on his first day in his, in his mission. And he calls out, yet 40 days of Nineveh, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So at some point between getting up off that beach and showing up in Nineveh and actually getting there, God gives him the message, right? You are going to tell them that they have 40 days to repent, to stop being the people they are, and to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or else God will destroy or overthrow them. Now in his heart, Jonah is like many of us. We've seen that already. Right? Jonah doesn't want to see Nineveh repent. doesn't want to see their lives change. He wants them to get what they deserve. He wants them to get theirs. He wants them to be judged. He wants them to be destroyed. 
So because of how they've been treated in Israel, and in, in, in how they've treated Israel in the past. So Jonah's kind of subverting God's message a little bit. Right? Because God is giving them 40 days. So the implication is that they have a chance to repent. But you'll notice that Jonah doesn't really talk about that. He just gives them the 40 days. He just says, you know, in 40 days, you'll all be dead. Ha ha. Right? It's kind of the attitude Jonah comes in with. And by the way, 40 days is not just a number Jonah picks out of a hat. Right? It's not a random number that, that God gives him. The number 40 is usually symbolic of a couple of things. Um, firstly, it could just be symbolic of, of, of a long period of time. We see the number 40 used a lot in the Old Testament in that context. Right? Uh, 40 days, 40 years. Uh, if you take the Bible seriously like we do, and you take most of the text literally like we do, then you look at the second reason. 40 is often used um, in the context of testing or trial. Okay, so I'll, I'll give you a really quick list. Not, not going to give you all of them. That would, take a, that would take a while. But I'll give you a really, really quick list of kind of some of the more obvious examples of this in Scripture. Um, Moses spends how many days on Mount Sinai? 40. Uh, during Noah's flood, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites spend, uh, sorry, the Israelite spies spend 40 days in the promised land in Numbers 13. Um, Goliath taunts Israel in 1 Samuel 17 for 40 days. And he, this, this continues on into the New Testament even. Um, Jesus, is, Jesus fasts for 40 days. Uh, and, and that period of time between the resurrection and the ascension is also 40 days. So it's not a random number, right? God is testing Nineveh. He's giving them time to repent. They've been, they've been evil for so long, and it's taken God this long to act on his anger against them, to, to act in judgment against them. Uh, but God is here still, even as he's on the cusp of judgment, he's still being merciful. He's still giving them time to repent. You're getting one last shot. You've got 40 days to repent. This is your last notice. I often wonder how ready we are to do this kind of thing. How often are we ready or willing to give someone time to understand their sin or to understand their shortcomings when they've sinned against us, right? Someone sins against you, someone wrongs you, someone betrays you, are you slow to anger like God is? Are you abounding in mercy? I'm not saying do you ignore the issue, don't ignore the issue, because God doesn't ignore the issue, right? He does tell, he sends a prophet, go and tell them, they are evil, I will destroy them. But he gives them time to repent. Someone sins against you, firstly, do you tell them, hey, you've, you've sinned against me. And then once you, once you do that, do you, do, you, do you give grace, do you give time? Because you, you, I'll tell you, the first time you tell someone, hey, you've sinned against me, I mean, that's a strong word. You're going to get your back up pretty quick. So you've got to give them grace. You've got to give them time to think and pray. Did I really sin against them? Were they right? Did they have a point? Right? So do you give time? Are you abounding in mercy? Or are you more like Jonah? Right? Get them. Right? Don't give them time to think. Don't give them time to repent. Just, just give me justice now and get them. Who are you more like? Who, are you, who should you be more like? Verse 5, here's what happens. Okay, Jonah's there, he's preaching, you've got 40 days, that's it. Verse 5, here's what happens. The people of Nineveh believed God. That's impressive. They believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Do you know what that expression means, from the greatest to, to the least? It means everyone. 
means all of the people. Every single person in the city of Nineveh repented. Everyone sees the sin they've been committing, sees the evil in their hearts, and they listen to the message that Jonah preaches, and they repent. And if you're wondering this morning how that's possible, how an entire city, without exception, can in one mind believe God and repent together, let me just remind you gently who you're dealing with. You're dealing with the God of creation. You're dealing with the God who created everything out of nothing. The God who made incredible complexity at the subatomic level. Complexity that we're only just beginning to scratch the surface of understanding. And at the same time, incredible and equal complexity at the level of galaxies and universes. Right? Like there's two universes that we know of, right? Because our universe is expanding. So the natural question is, if the universe is expanding, what's it expanding into? I'll keep you up at night, right? So there's, we, we call, those are the, like the two universes. So at, at the, the, the God who created that kind of complexity, the God that creates the human heart, is the God who can mold and shape and change that human heart. It's not difficult for him. It's not hard at all for him to do that. And here, he changes the hearts of an entire city. Even reaches the man they call the king of Nineveh. Now, Again, Nineveh at the time was, was, wasn't a city-state. It was part of a, of a larger um, empire. didn't have its own king. So the man referred to as the king of Nineveh is probably um, like an Assyrian regional governor, someone kind of in that legal position who was referred to by the people as the king of Nineveh. So because that's his common name, his common title, that's the title that Jonah refers to him in the book. So it reaches even this powerful, powerful man. Verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let him call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent, turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. So it's obvious to any Israelite reader of the book of Jonah and to any Christian reader today that the king of Nineveh doesn't really know what he's doing, right? I mean, he's obviously not a follower of God. The man, the man sits in sackcloth and ashes. Good start. It's a sign of submission. It's a sign of mourning. It's a sign of repentance. That's, that's good. Then he, then he declares this fast. That's, that's also a good thing, right? It's a good start. It's another indication of obedience to God. It's another indication of humility, of repentance, especially for a man of his stature, for you know, someone who's viewed as a king or a governor to do that kind of thing. Huge. But he doesn't stop there. He declares a fast to the people and extends it to animals, herds, and flocks, not letting them eat anything either, which is, to Israelite ears and to Christian ears, I mean, that's just silly, right? Because they don't have... They don't, like, animals don't sin, you guys, right? So he's not exactly correct in his theology. He needs to be d- discipled like the sailors we met in chapter 1. He needs to be discipled like them. But here's the reality, verse 10. Here's what happens. When God saw what they did, talking about people of Nineveh, when God saw how they turned from their evil way, 
God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. A couple things going on here. Firstly, there are some commentators who will say that Nineveh didn't really repent. Right? They didn't really properly, fully, or completely re- re- repent. And they'll point to the book of Nahum, a couple books later in the Bible, where God comes back to Nineveh. And, um, well, I'll let you read it, because it's about as long as Jonah, but it doesn't go well for the city at that time. So there's someone would say that they didn't really re- repent completely. But here's what happens. Repentance for us is not just, I'm sorry. Okay? It's not just an apology. It's not just being sorry for something you've done. It's not just apologizing for a mistake or a sin. Repentance involves this kind of turning away. Right? It's this, this action. It's not just, not, not just words. It's action. It's behavior. It's not just, I'm sorry. It's, I'm sorry. I, not only will I try my best not to do it again, but there's no desire within me to ever do this again. If I fail and do this, it's not because I want to do it. It's because my flesh has overpowered my spirit. Right? There's no desire to ever do this again. There's, there's no joy to be had there, and I know that. There's no, there's no happiness to be had there. So, Father, Lord, please help me not to ever do this again. That's, that's repentance. It's turning away. And look at the phrase that Jonah uses in verse 10. How they turned from their evil way. That sounds like repentance to me. So even within the text of Jonah, it seems like they're talking about repentance. So I'm convinced that an entire generation of people in Nineveh repented. Right Now, Nahum takes place 100 years later. So I don't know how long this repentance lasted. But I'm convinced that everyone in chapter 3, alive in that city, repented. Additionally, and this is for me the most convincing um, evidence that their conversion was genuine. Uh, and, and I hope it will be for you as well. Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. This is Jesus speaking. He's talking about what happened in Nineveh. So verse 40, so starting in 40. Um, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 41. The men of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Um, You'll see that Jesus Christ himself believed and taught that their conversion was genuine. So, I, I, I mean, I don't know if we need any more explanation than that you can't rise up at the resurrection and condemn people if you're condemned yourself and here jesus says the men of nineveh who heard jonah and repented will do just that so i mean what what other evidence do you need really so what happens next here is god relents from the disaster that he said he would do to them God relented. He stopped. He didn't do the thing he said he was going to do. Now, wait a minute. I thought God didn't change. Right? Now, it certainly sounds like he changes here. Right? Sounds like he changes his mind about what he's going to do with Nineveh. 
What if I told you that God didn't change either himself or what he said in the story? Remember, why does God say he's going to destroy Nineveh? Right? Why does he send Jonah in after them? Verse 2, right? for their evil, because they are evil, it's because they're wicked, because they're evil, it's because they're like this vicious and ruthless people. But now they've repented, they've turned away from that. There's no more desire to be that kind of people. They don't want that anymore. They've repented. They've turned away from it. So what does God do in response? He relents. He doesn't change. Right? I was going to destroy them because they're evil. They repented from their wickedness. They're not evil anymore. And so God no longer has any reason to destroy them. You see how great the mercy of our God is? You see how amazing the mercy of our God is? God doesn't change We change. The Ninevites changed. We're the ones who change. On top of that, Jonah's prophecy is still true. And this is amazing. The verb in Hebrew that Jonah uses when he says, in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed, literally translates to overturned. So in 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. It's a play on words. Because by the 40 day mark, Nineveh is overturned. Their lives have been overturned after they were crushed by their sin and led to repentance. So, in no way does God change. It was going to be an overturning in one way or another. Either it was going to be a physical overturning, or it was going to be a spiritual one. And they repented, so they got the spiritual one. Let me ask you this. What... What was it that made God relent? What was the thing that the Ninevites did that made God relent from his anger? Right? The biggest thing they did was the fast, right? No one eats, no one drinks, even the animals. Everyone's dressed in sackcloth. The king is in sackcloth and sitting in ashes. On top of that, none of the livestock gets to eat, eat or drink either, right? It's a huge display of devotion to God. Huge. Does the fast save them? No. Fast doesn't save them. God saves them because God is the one who relents. Whether they fasted or not has no bearing on God's decision to destroy them or not, except to say this the fast showed the seriousness of their repentance. The fast showed the seriousness of their repentance. Because anybody can say anybody can say you're sorry. Anybody can, can say they've repented and even look like they have for a while, but if your heart hasn't changed, it's not real. It's easy to fake it. But if your heart hasn't changed, it's not real. Anybody can say, look, I'll try harder not to do whatever. So the fast itself doesn't change, doesn't, doesn't save you, but it shows the seriousness of, of what you're doing, of what you're saying. The book of James speaks to this, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to this next month when we get into James. Um, James 2, verse 17 says this, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Their actions don't save them. God in his sovereignty saves them. And he saves them because their hearts have been changed. And the earthly evidence of their hearts being changed is the fast. You tracking with that? He changes us. We change. Some people have said this about the Bible. Um, 
The Bible is like the Christian world's version of a terms and service agreement, right? You guys know what a terms of service agreement is, right? When you're, when it's that little box you click whenever your computer wants to do something new, right? Like, like your computer, like you want to do something on the internet or you want to sign up for some service and you get this little box and you got to, yes, I have read and agreed to the terms of service of this agreement and you click on it and you say, yes, I've done that. Nobody really reads those. You guys know that, right? Like no one, no one reads those. They, they've done studies on this. Ninety-eight percent of people don't read them. The other two percent are lawyers, right? It's pages and pages and pages of intentionally complicated, confusing legal language, just so I can download a song on my computer, just so I can use Facebook, just so I can do pretty much anything on the internet. You got you to click one of these things. And people have said this about the Bible: that the Bible is like the Christian world's version of a terms of service agreement. Right? We all click agree, even though we haven't read the thing. Now, if you have read it, if you've read the whole thing, cover to cover, I'm certain, I'm absolutely certain that you've found things in there that you don't agree with. Especially if, you've been, uh, if you haven't been raised in a Christian home. Right? If you came to faith, like myself, if you came to faith later on in life and you read the Bible cover to cover then, you're, you're going to find things in there you don't agree with. I find things in there I don't agree with. Right? I used to think when I was a very young Christian, I was a very young believer, I'd only been a believer for maybe a year or two when I got to this verse, I used to think it was silly in my, young, 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 my younger years um, that only men could be elders or pastors. I used to think that was nuts. Surely, I thought, after 2,000 some odd years of human progress, we've evolved past that. After all, everyone, remember I was very young, everyone agrees that at this point that men and women are equal. Right? Well, that's, that's true. We're equal in dignity, we're equal in value, we're equal in worth. But the Bible clearly teaches that we're different in terms of our roles. And the office of pastor and the office of elder are reserved for men. And when I was shown that, when I was taught that, that it was there in the Bible, and it's clear and obvious, and Paul roots his argument in creation order, not in some cultural, um, some cultural opinion, um, I didn't grab a sharpie and black out those parts of my Bible because I disagreed with them. Even if it made me uncomfortable, I changed. And the longer it's been since I changed my mind, the longer I, I, I become more comfortable with that doctrine, the more it, it, makes, it just makes sense to me. As I see the world through the lens of the New Testament and see the world through the lens that Christ gives me. But at first, man, I didn't like it. I really didn't like it. You know, I would be ashamed to tell people that I was a complementarian. Because some people called me sexist. Right? I, I worked with a girl... At, at Starbucks, Starbucks is a great, if you ever have a chance to work in a Starbucks, even for a month, just do it. It's a great cross-section of all the different worldviews you'll ever come across. I, I worked with a girl there, um, and, and she asked me, she's like, oh, so you're training to be a pastor? I said, yeah. She says, um, she knew I was married. She goes, do you have a problem with your wife working? I said, No. But, I mean, we, we want to have a family and we, we want to have kids. And, and, and you know, I, I want her to, to stay home with the kids. And here, here's the important part. She wants to stay home with the kids. 
Don't forget that I said that. Okay? She wants to stay home with the kids. And then I said, so, so because of that, I mean, I mean Cody's going to, we're going to do our absolute best to make sure that Cody doesn't have to work. And if that means we live with less, then we live with less. And Cody will stay home and be a stay-at-home mom with the kids. And she said, <laughs> her opinion was that I'm oppressing my wife. And I said, I said, you heard that I told you that she wants to stay home with the kids, right? Like, it's her desire to do that as well. If we had different desires, if she wanted to be a mom that, that has a career and, and works and sends the kids off to daycare, that's, that's fine, but that's not for me, and I wouldn't have married her. We agree on this, and so, um, and, and, and so she's going to stay home with the kids as much as that's possible. And she goes, no, you're oppressing your wife. I said, wouldn't I be oppressing her if I forced her to work? She goes, no, that'd be liberating. I said, okay. I was her supervisor, so I didn't really pursue the conversation because that'd be awkward. But, but it, it didn't make me awkward. It, it was awkward because, I mean, she just didn't get it. But it, didn't, it wasn't awkward that I held that position because I said, look, at the, the, the end of the day, my wife and I agree, and we base our opinion on what Scripture teaches us. And it ended, up, I mean, it ended up being a friendly conversation. It was agree to disagree, and that's fine. But it's, that, it's always, you know, you're oppressing your wife because you're not forcing her to work outside the home. That's what the Bible teaches. So I changed my mind, right? God doesn't change, we change. I, I can give you more examples, but I really don't think you, you, you need them. If you've read the Bible, I mean, I'm sure you've come across things you don't agree with, things you don't like, things you wish weren't there. And if you haven't, then I doubt you're being honest with yourself. And when you do that, when you come across those types of things, you've got two options. You can, you can change your mind. You can change how you view the world. Or you can try and change God's mind. And you're, not, you're just not going to win the second one. Right? Jonah learned that the hard way. It was probably the softer, darker, smellier, stickier way right, in the belly of that fish. But... You've got to learn that lesson. You can't change God's mind. You're human. You're human. You can't change God's mind. I mean, are, are you kidding me? He invented your brain. God invented your brain. You can't change his mind. I mean, this is like... I mean, there's a lot of kids in this church. You guys saw them earlier. Kids are they are great. They're cute. They're adorable. Um, but you put them next to an adult and measure their intelligence, kids are dumb, right? And I, I say that, I've, I've got two of them, and I love them to death, but I mean, if I let Chloe run around the basement, or run around our living room and our kitchen while we're not around, she'd likely kill herself, right? Kids are not intelligent. And I say that because compared to God, like you stand a, a, a grown-up next to a kid, and the kid's not intelligent, and, the, and the, the adult is. You stand an adult next to the Lord, it's not even a contest. We are not smart. We're, we're the pinnacle of creation. We're the smartest thing on this planet. Put us next to God, we're not smart. Not even, not even a little bit. You can't change God's mind. So in those situations, you find something in Scripture that you don't like, you don't agree with, the only real option you have is to conform our mind to His, to change our mind and submit to the will of Scripture. Read more of the Bible when we come across those passages, those sections we don't agree with, how we see the world changes. Because remember what happened. Those of you who were saved as an adult, right? 
you were saved as an adult, when you came to a knowledge of your sin, you came to a knowledge of a gospel, to a knowledge of the gospel as an adult, right? What happened to you? You used to think your sin was fine, right? You used to think it wasn't a problem. You used to think you were a good person, right? Hi, (laughs) I did too, right? You used to think that, you know, if I'm good enough, if I'm just good, if I'm just good enough, if the scales tilt ever so slightly in the good category, I've got it all under control, you know, I'm, I'm kind of twisting God's arm and I'm, I'm, I'm going to make him let me get into the kingdom because I'm just at least barely good enough. What happened to that belief when you were confronted with the reality of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sin? What happened to that belief when you were confronted with the weight of your sin in front of a holy and mighty and righteous God? What happened when your heart was changed and when you changed your mind? Well, it doesn't work anymore. It's not about how good I am or how good I'm not or the good I've done or the good I have. It's, it's about the work that Christ completed on the cross in my name, in my place. So the Ninevites repented. And God relented. Right? Nothing has changed since then. The only thing that has changed now is that you're not punished for sin in this life. That's the only thing that's changed from Old Covenant to New Covenant. You're not punished for sin anymore because that punishment has already been served. That punishment has already been completed in Jesus. So now we don't get punishment. Now we get, we get correction. We get rebuke. We get conviction, absolutely. Because those are the things that lead us to repentance. Because you've only got one life to repent in. If we don't repent in this life, then God can't be expected to relent. Because he doesn't change. Because we haven't changed our hearts. We haven't changed our minds. Repentance is an ongoing thing in our lives now. You don't stop repenting because you got saved once. Because, again, what's repentance? It's a turning away from sin. It's a, it's, it's, it's a desire to no longer sin, to live in a way that pleases God. Now, do we still sin? Yes. Uh, yes. Do I still sin? Yes. Of course we do. So what happens in your mind when, and, and in your heart when you sin today? Yesterday? Tomorrow? Do you, do you feel the weight of that on your soul and the, the desire and the pain and the shame of the sin? Like, how could I be so stupid? How could I be so foolish to do this thing that my flesh wants to do, that my body wants to do, but my spirit doesn't want to do anymore because it doesn't honor God, it doesn't, it doesn't glorify God because it spits on the gospel, because it spits on grace? How could I be so foolish and simple to do that? Please, God, forgive me again. Or do you just shrug it off? Right? Like, oh, no big deal. God's already forgiven me once, so why bother repenting anymore? I've already been forgiven. It's not a big deal anymore, is it? It's just, you know, it's all right, because I'm forgiven. Well, Paul talks about that, right? Paul asks the questions, shall we sin more that grace may abound? You know, shall I, you know, God forgives us, and when God, when God forgives us, he pours his grace out on us. So the more we sin, the more grace we get. So why not just sin more? We sin more, get more grace, and then I'm soaked in grace, and that's awesome. That's the question Paul asks. Shall we sin more that grace may abound? No, because it, 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 
Just like the fast is an evidence that you have repented, sinning in spite of forgiveness is evidence that you haven't actually repented, that your heart hasn't actually changed. Repentance is an ongoing thing for Christians. I don't want to load you down with guilt and shame. I don't. And if, if, if I'm doing that, please forgive me. That's not my intent. The cross is there to take guilt away from you. The cross is there to take shame away from you. But I do want you to check your heart. I do want you to check your motives. I do want you to question whether or not you're saved. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? As a Christian, knowing what you know about God, knowing what you know about Jesus, how do you feel today when you sin? Do you repent? Do you repent to the person you've sinned against? Do you repent to God who you've sinned against? Do you give people the opportunity to repent to you or do you just want to call down justice like Jonah did? Like the Ninevites, does your life show the fruit of repentance? Does your work show the seriousness of your faith, the seriousness of your repentance, the seriousness of your commitment? Or are you just simply going through the motions, like so many have, and like so many will? Let's pray.